Well, good morning, and I want to give a special good morning to everybody at Calvary Quakertown joining us this morning. It's great to be here learning about not only what God has done this past week, but what he wants to uh, do in our lives this morning. I do an announcement right up front. There will be no sliming today. I am still cleaning out green goo from hair and ears and places like that. Uh, But once and done, that's over forever. It's kind of what I'm thinking. We're in a series that we're calling FaceTime, Conversations with Jesus. And we're looking at some of the incidents that we find in the Gospels and in the New Testament where Jesus interacts with people. And one of the things that we have discovered and we will discover every week in the series is that through those encounters, transformation and change come. And those people are never the same again. And our goal is that as we interact with these accounts, that we will be transformed and changed as well. Well, since uh, Jeremiah started the series by looking at two encounters, uh, Jairus' daughter and the ill woman, and then Logan followed up by looking at two commands and the Pharisees there, I thought I would continue and look at two. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 8, and we're going to look at two turbulent encounters. Two turbulent encounters. One encounter is with a turbulent sea, and the other encounter is with a turbulent man. And we're going to see how the disciples, the man, the town, and everybody's different because of those encounters. So if you have your phone, your iPad, your Bible, whatever you've got, follow along as I read Luke chapter 8, beginning in verse 22, and see if you can remind yourself of these encounters. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side of the lake. So they got into a boat and set out. As they sailed, he fell asleep. A squall came down on the lake so that the boat was being swamped and they were in great danger. The disciples went and woke him saying, Master, Master, we're going to drown. He got up and rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The sea subsided and all was calm. Where's your faith, he asked his disciples. In fear and amazement, they asked one another, who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. They sailed to the region of the Gerasenes, which is across the lake from Galilee. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the impure spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. Jesus asked him, What is your name? Legion, he replied, because many demons had gone into him, and they begged Jesus repeatedly not to order them to go into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. The demons begged Jesus to let them go into the pigs, and he gave them permission. When the demons came out of the man, they went into the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and was drowned. When those tending the pigs saw what had happened, They ran off and reported this in the town and the countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they found a man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at Jesus' feet, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people how the demon-possessed man had been cured, 
Then all the people of the region of the Gerasenes asked Jesus to leave them because they were overcome with fear. So he got into the boat and left. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return home and tell how much God has done for you. So the man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Two encounters, some similarities, some big differences. So let's look at the encounters themselves. Then we'll kind of look behind them a little bit and see if we can learn some things about the history and context. And then we'll look beyond the encounters and see what lessons there can be for you and me in trying to answer the disciples' question, who is this guy? Well, first of all, the first encounter. Jesus says to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. They get into the boat, and before you know it, a raging storm stirs up the sea so that the wind's blowing and the rain's coming down and the waves are crashing over the boat. And this isn't like any normal storm. In fact, it's not just the banker on board that's afraid. It's not just the tax collector that's afraid. Guys who earn their living fishing on the Sea of Galilee are scared to death. They're afraid they're going to die from this storm. So this is a particularly difficult storm. This is an encounter uh, with nature that's causing them to fear for their very lives. Jesus must be really tired, kind of like the leaders from Harvey Cedars, I guess. He's sleeping in the back of the boat. In the midst of the raging storm, the boat's kind of bobbing around, and the disciples wake him up and say, Jesus, don't you care about us? We're going to drown in the storm. Wake up. Can you do something? Jesus wakes up. He doesn't roll up his sleeves. He doesn't pull out a magic wand. He doesn't work up a sweat. Jesus says, stop it. And the wind stops blowing immediately. And the rain stops. And amazingly, the waves immediately cease. If you've ever been at the shore uh, during a storm, if you're ever on a ship in the storm, you know that once the storm's over, the waves continue to rock for a while, but not, on, not in this storm and not after Jesus says, stop it. The waves immediately stop. The disciples were afraid of the storm. They are now terrified of Jesus. And they ask the question, who is this guy? Even the forces of nature obey him. He didn't work up a sweat. He didn't use some incantation. He didn't go through some ritual. Jesus just spoke simple words and the storm immediately obeyed. Just like a little child sometimes obeys his parents, the storm immediately obeys Jesus and it stops. That's the first encounter. And the disciples are left with a question. So who is this guy? Well, the second incident immediately follows. And uh, sometimes it's important to kind of link together different um, accounts in the, in the Gospels or in the New Testament to help us understand why the author stitched them together. Well, after this, uh, we're told by Luke that the boat shows up on the other side of the lake. Don't ask me why, but they decided to land the boat at a cemetery. Don't ask me why, but they get out and they're in a cemetery. And rather than just seeing lots of tombstones, they meet a raving lunatic. This guy is wild, right? In fact, the point is, there was a raging storm on the outside in the previous incident, 
but this guy's experiencing a raging storm on the inside. And so Jesus is face to face with a maniac, somebody who has been tried to be, you know, they tried to handle, they would chain him and he'd snap the chains. He was under constant guard to keep him away from the townspeople. And he's being possessed by something and the evil spirits move him to a cemetery as if to point out his ultimate destination and he's living there. Now, you've got to keep in mind, everything about this second incident is unclean, 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 unclean. That's the point. They're at an unclean place. They're in a cemetery. In the Old Testament, for Jews to touch or be, you know, real radically close to a dead body made you unclean because that was unclean. They arrive in a cemetery. They meet a man with unclean spirits. Therefore, he's unclean. And there's a bunch of pigs roaming around and they're unclean animals. We know immediately that they're in Gentile territory because no self-respecting Jew was going to raise pigs. So they're unclean place, cemetery, unclean spirits inhabiting the man and unclean animals all over the place. Jesus shows up in an unclean, unclean, unclean place. Again, Jesus doesn't work up a sweat, doesn't roll up his sleeves, pull out a magic wand, go through rituals or incantations, basically says, uh, get out. And he commands the evil spirits to leave the guy gives them permission, they request permission to go into the herd of pigs, and immediately once they inhabit the pigs, the pigs race off the cliff, take a flying leap into the Sea of Galilee, and before the episode ends, they're kind of bobbing along in the Sea of Galilee. Well, people that are watching, the owners of the pigs, they're kind of ticked off at this, and are also amazed. They run back into town and tell everybody, you've got to come out, come outside town, see what happened. They meet the guy that now is in his right mind. They see the pigs bobbing on the sea, Interestingly, they tell Jesus to get the heck out of there. Mark tells us part of the reason they want him to leave is because Jesus is ruining the economy. Look, I'm not sure if you know the price of pigs today, but 2,000 pigs is a lot of money bobbing in the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is destroying the farmer's lifestyle. He's destroying the economy, and the townspeople tell him to get the heck out of there. Jesus gets in the boat and leaves. Two encounters over forces of nature, over spiritual forces, right? Jesus is sovereign, powerful over nature and supernature. That's how the story goes. Well, a little bit of background. I know you may not be interested. A little bit of history, a little bit of context would probably help you want to understand a little better what's going on. So let's take a minute to talk about things behind the encounters, this is a different world than we live in. And so it's important to understand a few themes, a few ideas, a few of the assumptions that those people were dealing with so that we can understand what's going on better. In the first encounter, you have to understand that the Israelites were not a seafaring people. The Israelites were not Vikings, not the Minnesota Vikings, but the real Vikings from Norway, right? The Vikings like to go on ships, like to take off, sail all over the world, not the Israelites. The Israelites didn't like to go out in boats too much. And whenever they went out to a boat, often bad stuff happened. Remember Jonah? So Jonah gets on a boat, lots of bad stuff happens. A few of them would venture onto a small sea, the lake, a big lake, the Lake of Galilee, to kind of do a little fishing and earn a living. But they weren't going to venture too far out into the Mediterranean. They're not going to go out into the oceans. Israelites are not really a seafaring kind of people. Occasionally, they would hire people. So you can read in the Old Testament. They will hire other nations and people 
to do things across you know, oceans and seas for them, but they're not going to venture out too far. Why? Well, because the sea's kind of dark and dangerous, and it's uncontrollable. Um, even if you go to the islands and you can kind of see the bottom of the sea, or once you're out into like the middle of the ocean, it's kind of dark under there, right? And you know from experience, a lot of bad stuff can happen with stuff down there, right? Something to come up and chomp on you a little bit, chase you from here. Lots of stuff we don't know lives down there, and most of it we don't want to know about. It's also dangerous and uncontrollable. Even today, it's not uncommon for us to hear of a story. Here's a family, sets off on a vacation. They kind of rent a sailboat, sail out. But before you know it, a storm hits, and they either get rescued or they're never to be seen again. That doesn't happen that often on land. I mean, it can happen, but often on land, you kind of see what's coming. You can protect yourself from it. But on the sea, dangers are ever apparent, and they're right there all the time. Lots of crazy, dangerous, uncontrollable stuff happens on the sea. That's what you have to know. Therefore, when you read in the book of Revelation that there was no more sea, that doesn't mean there's no water. That means there's nothing dark, dangerous, and uncontrollable now. It's a metaphor for the dark and the dangerous, those uncontrollable forces. That's how the Jewish mind worked. And you have to know that Jesus speaks and commands the dark, dangerous, uncontrollable forces of nature, and immediately they obey. Well, the second incident has a lot more explaining necessary. The second incident is all about complexity, paradox, and things are progressive. And there are lots of questions that we can ask about this second incident that we don't know the answers to. We do know this, that we sometimes think of those in the New Testament times or in the ancient world as being kind of simple-minded and naive, but we're very sophisticated and modern. Uh, but that's not always true. In fact, there's a verse that some of you need, need, to, need, need to know. It's in Matthew chapter 4. And I want to point it out to you because it will fight against your idea of the simple-mindedness of people in the ancient world or particularly in the New Testament world. Check this out. News about Jesus spread all over Syria, right? So it's outside of Israel. And people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases. So they have physical ailments, right? Those suffering from severe pain, the demon possessed, those having seizures, Notice, the ancient world, in the New Testament, those people didn't have a simplistic view of all of the ailments that we have. They knew that there were physiological ailments and there are psychological ailments, there are spiritual ailments, there are relational ailments. And often, those ailments are so wrapped together and tangled together that trying to discern how every jot and tittle or every detail kind of works isn't that simple. In fact, if anybody's simplistic... Maybe it's the people in our day. There are people in our day that basically assume all problems that human beings had have are chemical. Therefore, take a pill. It doesn't matter if you have anxiety. It doesn't matter any psychological, relational, spiritual element. Just take the right medication. Change your physiology and all will be well. The Bible never gives that simple explanation. There are other people in our world that say, well, most problems in our life can be solved through talk. You know, meet with a counselor, meet with a psychologist, have them reflect back to you what's inside. And through, your, through the passions of your heart and how you're putting your own life together, your problems can be solved. Well, sometimes they can't be solved that way. All problems are moral, some people say. 
and we experience the consequences of our immorality, bad decisions and so forth. Well, problems are sometimes bigger than that. Sometimes problems are spiritually related. But here's the point. Those different kinds of problems in each of us, and I know you know this from experience, often get so tangled together and enmeshed that it's impossible for us to separate all of the details. You can have a physiological, an actual physical problem, and once you learn of it, doesn't that affect your thinking and your emotions? Doesn't that affect your psychology? Sure it does. And you can be having a relational problem. Doesn't that at times affect your body and your physiology? Life is complex. God made us as complex humans, and our problems are not simply separated and simply cured. They knew that in the Old Testament. There are disease problems, there are demon problems, they're all kinds, demonization and disease are not the same thing. And so we often read the, read the New Testament or Old Testament, oh, those simple fools back then. Yeah, maybe we're the ones that are more simplistic than they are. Uh, another issue we need to think about is the issue of paradox. Does this uh, guy tormented by, by the demons, he's kind of a paradox, isn't he? On the one side, he's super strong. Did you ever notice that? He can snap chains when they chain his hands and his feet. You ever watch those Strongest Man shows where those giant hokey guys kind of do? I don't see them snapping many chains. I don't see them running away or defeating all of the guards. This guy has superhuman strength. But he is completely controlled. He has lots of strength, he's empowered, and he's enslaved at the same time. That's a paradox, right? He can do crazy, you know, and bigger than human things, but he's also controlled. He's enslaved to something else. Um, but we understand that if we change the picture a little bit, right? Let me, let me just give one example. Suppose, nobody in this room, suppose there's somebody who has set as his or her top priority to hit a grand slam with his or her career. Job, financial reward, resume, reputation, job number one. I can tell you what will happen. If that becomes your major goal, you will work crazy long hours. You'll put in lots of time and energy. Everything will be about your work. You'll always be on call. You go down the list. You will be superhuman when it comes to your work. And you know what your boss will do? He'll give you raises, he'll promote you, pretty sure you're kind of running departments and you're getting all of these rewards, you're being patted on the back, you are empowered. And lots of other employees are probably looking at you saying, oh my goodness, I wish I worked like that person. I want the rewards that they're getting. Look at all the accolades. But on the flip side, he or she is probably uh, trashing their marriage. They've never been to one of their kids' ball games or parties. Stepping on people, maybe cutting ethical corners, stabbing other people in the back. There's an empowerment on the one side, but there is an enslavement on the other side. And it often happens with the same exact goal. That's what we see pictured here. It's a paradox. It's also progressive. Let me see if I can explain it like this. Your version of the Bible will often say, when it talks about demons, I know we don't think in those terms much, but when the Bible talks about demon possession in our versions, you need to understand the original never said demon possession. The original always says demonization. They're being demonized. 
that has a lot more to do with influence than it has to do with geographical possession or ownership. So think of it this way. Um, it's a little more frightening than the whole possession thing is because here's what we, of, we often want to take a level of comfort from the whole possession idea, and he, here's how we often think, especially in America. We read about this crazed lunatic, right? We think, boy, this guy is like demon-possessed. He's got all these thousands of demons living inside. He is a mess. I've, I've never met anybody like that, but um, good thing I didn't. This guy is crazy, right? But then we feel a sense of comfort because we've never met someone like that. Very different than us. Yeah, but here's the picture. In the Bible, the, the language is always influence. So in my mind, at least, there's one continuum. On the one end of the continuum is being influenced by evil. And this guy here is pretty close. He's not at the end of the continuum. He's pretty close. He's influenced by evil. On the other end of the same continuum is being influenced by the Spirit, influenced by good being filled with the Holy Spirit. That's one continuum. Now, here's where the comfort kind of disappears. Every one of us lives somewhere on that continuum, and our place on the continuum is never static. Every decision, every attitude, every action moves us one step on the continuum in one direction or the other. So if you open your life and open your heart to resentment and no forgiveness and you know, not confessing and you're moving further down the influence of evil side and when you decide to, to do things that according to God's plan and according with the gospel foundation, you take steps toward the godly side, every day we move along the continuum. So maybe the uh, comfort level needs to dissipate a little bit and we need to Make sure our decisions and our attitudes and our actions are moving us in the right direction. That's why we encourage you all to come to church and get involved in a group and talk about the scripture and spend time in the Bible alone because we want the influence to be moving in the right direction rather than the wrong direction. Well, before we move this point, I have to say a few words about the poor little piggies. I know in America in 2019, the poor little piggies get lots of prayer. After the first service, I had a line of people wanting to know about the poor little piggies. So here's what I'll say about the poor little piggies. I don't know most about the poor little piggies, and I don't think anybody else does either. We do know this. Since there are pigs in the story, we're in Gentile territory. So when Jesus crosses the lake, he's moving from a Jewish section to a Gentile section. So he's in the Gentile place. So what's up with the piggies? Well, here are a couple of crystal clear lessons, and this is maybe all we can say. Now think about this. One human life is more valuable than 2,000 pigs. Isn't that the point of the story? One guy has more value in God's eyes than thousands of pigs. Now the Bible does say God knows when one little sparrow falls to the ground, but one human being made in God's image is more valuable than thousands of pigs and thousands of sparrows and birds. We often don't think that way, do we? And we also uh, learn this lesson from the story. The goal of evil on that end of the continuum, the goal of evil is always destruction and death. Jesus did not sentence the demons and the pigs into the lake. The demons drove the pigs into the lake. They were in the process of destroying the guy and moving him to a place of death, and they destroyed the, the pigs. 
Beyond that, I'm not sure what happened to the pigs, and I don't know what happened to all the demons. But I do know those, those are two lessons that if we could wrap our heads around them, I think we'd move a whole lot more securely in knowing what God, God's plan's about rather than inventing something else. So the incidents are complex. This one in particular, it's paradoxical and it's progressive. You're moving in one direction or the other. All right, well, I know some of you would like to end right now, but before we do that, let's look beyond the encounters. Beyond. Let's try to answer the disciples' question. So who is this guy? Who is he? He stands up and silences the storm. He dismisses the demons into the pigs, and they all drown in the sea. Who is he? Well, here are a couple of answers that come right from the story. First of all, uh, Jesus is sovereign. He's in control. When he stands in the boat and silences the storm and the wind and the wave, he's just reminding us who he is. The author has authority over all that he's made. The creator has authority of over, of over all that he's made. Did you notice? Before the demons are dismissed into the pigs, they have to get permission from Jesus. Would you please do? It's not that evil's on one side and that's kind of equal to God on the other side. No, no, no. God has no opposite. God is perfectly sovereign. Jesus is sovereign. All forces are controlled by him. He is controlled by nothing. The author has authority. I was reminded of that this past week. I was uh, away at a conference, and last Sunday evening, I had a problem. I, uh, I had my slides and stuff for the week, and you know the new thing is you don't have the little USB things. You trade back and forth. You email, you send, whatever you attach. And I could not connect to the Wi-Fi at the conference. So I see the director. I say, hey, what's that? Oh, here's the password. No big deal. Just connect. And I can't connect. I look for IT people at the conference. It's Sunday night. None of them work Sunday night. So what do I do? I call the IT people at Calvary Church. And they love talking to me on Sunday night, by the way. <laughs> and so I call them and say, I've got a problem. Charles, you always have a problem. What's your problem on a Sunday night? So I explain it. And uh, Carol Boyd very, uh, very nicely says, well, I'm not that busy. I'll walk you through it. I'm in my hotel room. Uh, she says, okay, do you see the, I see the Wi-Fi thing, right? And I know what I do. I go up there, I click on it, and then I hit connect. But I hit connect and nothing happens. The screen just goes back. You probably don't have a strong signal. Walk around a little bit with your computer and see if you get a, big, a stronger signal. I leave my room. I'm walking around the campus last Sunday night with my open computer I eventually walk into the main building, right? The main office building. I walk in. I'm assuming I have a better signal there because that's where the servers are from. Nothing. Still won't go. I hit connect, nothing. Hit disconnect, connect, nothing. Carol then says, huh, you sure you have a signal? I'm in the main building. I think I have a signal. What do you see when you hit properties? Hit properties. I see disconnect, connect, forget. Okay. Hit disconnect. Hit disconnect. Now hit connect, hit connect, nothing happens. I've done that 50 times already. Uh, I can't connect. After 25 minutes, Carol says, oh, I got an idea. Go to properties and hit forget. I hit forget, then hit connect, hit connect, and all of a sudden it asks for the password. I type in the password, I'm good, I'm good. Somehow, my computer was remembering 
the password from the previous year, but it wouldn't let me get rid of it until I hit forget. Then I had to put the new one in and everything worked fine after that. So I see the executive director the next day. I said, why did you guys change the password? That's a dumb idea. They got the same people coming back. Why do you change the password? Keep the same password forever. That'd be a whole lot easier for people. Charles, we have to change the password for security reasons. And you know what? As the author of kind of how that stuff operates at the conference, he can change the password all he wants. And I could have tried thousands of times to disconnect and connect with the wrong password, and I would have never been connected. The author has authority to call the shots, and Jesus is the author of nature and supernature, and he has authority to call the shots. He does it with the forces of nature, and he also does it with the forces of supernature. He is sovereign over it all. I don't know about you, but I need to kind of be reminded of that regularly because I often face forces in my life that are way beyond my ability to heal, they're way beyond my, my ability to do anything about, to change, but they're never beyond, beyond Jesus' ability. I'm not saying that Jesus will always do what you want in those situations, but he can do whatever he wants, and he promises to do what's for our good and for his glory. Well, that brings us to a second thing, and one I really don't like that much. Jesus is unmanageable. Don't you hate that? Um, we, we want a God that we can control, don't we? And if we're honest, most of our little prayer lists are really lists of stuff that we think God should do, and we're going to be a little ticked off if he doesn't do them the way we want when we want. Can I let you know a little secret? Jesus is not really that interested in your plans and what you want. He's interested in you and I getting in step with his plan, and that's the best plan. Jesus is unmanageable. He's not interested in you managing him, you sitting down giving him marching orders for the day, and then him getting in step with what you want. Idolatry throughout the Bible is all about human beings inventing a God that they can control. Underneath all idolatry is human beings saying, but if I jump through the hoops, if I do all the right things, if I say the right incantation, I'll be able to get this idol to do what I want. Jesus isn't playing. He's unmanageable. I can prove it to you. Three requests come in that second encounter. Three requests. Jesus responds to the request in ways that you and I would never guess. First of all, there's a request from the demons, right? The demons. They say, uh, rather than sentence us to the abyss, send us into the pigs. Jesus says, granted. Why? Why kill the pigs? What did they do? And again, after the pigs are dead, that the spirits kind of fly around, we don't know. We can ask a lot of questions that we don't know the answers to. But Jesus didn't answer the way everybody else would. I would say, heck with you guys. You're sentenced to the abyss now. Go on. And then nobody else has to put up with all that nonsense. He says, yes, sends them into the pigs. The pigs are dead. Do they go around and mess with other people? I don't know. But that's not how I would have answered. How about this one? The townspeople show up. Get out of here, Jesus. We don't, we don't want your kind around here. You're like messing with the farmers. The agricultural business is in the toilet now. We don't want the economy influenced negatively. Get out of here, Jesus says. Farewell. He leaves. Why, is it, why doesn't he say, I'm not leaving. You guys leave. I'm king of the world. I'm king of the universe. I'm staying. 
And you guys need to get in step with my plan. I'm going to make life really miserable for you guys. Jesus grants the request of the townspeople when they ask him to leave. He leaves. I wouldn't have done that. But here's the weirdest one. The deranged guy who now is in his right mind asks to come with Jesus. And if I'm Jesus, I'm boy, you could like be the MC next time I give sermon, right? You get up, share your little story about all that I did, and everybody will be then, sit, they'll be on the edge of their seats waiting for it. Maybe they're looking for something big to happen in their life. Okay, you'll be the opening act in all the services from here on out. Jesus tells the guy who wants to come and go with him, no, you can't come. I would let him come, right? After all, isn't Jesus here? to make followers and disciples. This guy wants to join the band of disciples. Jesus says, no. If you were writing the story, would you have invented that? Three requests, two are granted, the two that we wouldn't grant. One is not granted that we would have granted. And how about in the first incident? Why does Jesus let the disciples go out into that nasty storm? I don't know. Why does he let us experience difficulty and storms that seem like they're bringing us death and destruction? I don't know. He's unmanageable though, right? He's not interested in getting in step with your little idea and your script of what he needs to do. He's unmanageable. Now, his plan is the best plan. He knows what's best, but he's unmanageable from our perspective. He's not interested in getting his marching orders from us and then having as his mission to fulfill all of that. Well, here's the third thing. So who is this guy? Jesus is Savior. You notice that destruction and death are the two. Both of those themes are the backdrop in both stories. In the story, uh, the first one in the storm, destruction is the backdrop and death. If Jesus doesn't do something, they're going down in that storm. The fishermen are scared to death of the storm. Think about that. I mean, it's some raging storm, right? But Jesus rescues them. He calms the storm and rescues them. This guy who's in the cemetery, breaking chains, living with unclean spirits, he's not only in a cemetery, he's a step or two away from being put in the cemetery. And what does Jesus do? He rescues him from that predicament. He rescues him from the situation. Jesus brings salvation in both cases. He saves his disciples from the storm that will take them down, and he rescues us from the super, from forces of supernatural nature that's looking to bring destruction and death to us as well. Jesus may not always rescue the way we want, may not always rescue from every little detail that we want, but he promises to rescue us from the main destruction and the main cause of death forever. Well, one last thing. Jesus is on mission. Do you notice that? He's on mission. He doesn't just tell that guy, no, you can't come. Here's what he says to him. Return home and tell how much God has done for you. And the man obeyed. The man went away and told all over town how much Jesus had done for him. Jesus is on mission. Jesus is on mission to demonstrate his sovereignty to show that he is not to be managed and to, so, and to show that he's rescuer. And then he calls, the, he calls this guy, now you go share that same mission. You go extend what I've done with you 
to those that can be transformed through my encounter with you. And just as we need to be transformed and changed in some degree because of Jesus' encounter with the storm and with this guy, we need to then go share what Jesus has done for us, how he has made a difference in our lives. And let me end by uh, just kind of telling you the end of the story, because sometimes we don't connect it. Jesus rescued the disciples from the storm on the Sea of Galilee. One of the metaphors that is used for Jesus' crucifixion, for his death, is that Jesus went down in the storm of God's judgment. So Jesus saves them from the storm, but he goes down and and he can rescue them by experiencing what he kept them from. How about the second incident? If you read the end of Luke's gospel, Jesus is naked, Jesus is bound, Jesus is put in a tomb. All the things that this guy was experiencing that Jesus delivers him from, he experiences at the end of the gospel. In a sense, we learn about the mission. Jesus can rescue us because he experiences what he rescues us from, not in the particulars, but in the ultimate sense. We've got a savior unlike any human invention. And so I don't know about you, but I regularly need to be reminded, Jesus is sovereign. He's unmanageable. He's Savior, and he's on a mission, and he calls us to be part of and continue that mission. Let's do what the, uh, what the guy did at the end of the story, huh? You don't need to create really cool sermons and come up with all these great arguments. Just go share with others the difference that Jesus has made in your life. Father, we give you thanks for these two turbulent encounters that remind us of who you are. Sometimes we forget you're sovereign and we fret and are anxious and worried about things that may happen and or worse yet, we think that we're sovereign and need to make the decisions. Lord, every one of us in this room really wants to control you and manage you and tell you what to do. What foolishness that is. Help us rather to get in step with your plan and follow out your orders. Lord, you ultimately rescue us from our greatest enemies and you call us to be in mission with you to experience and then extend the difference that the gospel makes. Lord, help us to be like this guy that experiences liberation and freedom and forgiveness as we go and tell others the difference that you've made in our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen.